It's so fun to watch these conversations going on. I love it. This morning, we're going to do things a little bit differently. We're going to actually begin now with the message, and the message will be the thing that, that frames in what we're doing for the rest of the morning and will really equip us for the worship that will follow uh, after the uh, message. So I'd invite you to pray with me. Lord, there are a lot of places where we encounter words. We open a newspaper, magazines, books. Uh, remind us uh, that something unique uh, is true about this book that we're opening now, that uh, this isn't just humanity's best guesses about what's true about you. This is your word inspired by your spirit given to us to uh, equip us and to teach us what's true. So we pray, Lord, that you would make our hearts malleable and ready to be instructed and that, uh, that your word would be part of the way that you shepherd us into your presence and give us eyes to see you this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. So a question for you. Do you ever find yourself sitting on the couch on a Saturday night, contemplating going to church the next morning, or lying in your bed on Sunday morning, trying to decide if you should get out of bed and go, and find yourself thinking, well, why should I? Or do you ever find yourself walking out of a worship service with sort of a, eh, feeling uh, following worship that morning and asking yourself, well, why did I? When those moments come, and they do for every one of us, I wonder if that's because we have slipped into a wrong way of understanding what worship is all about. Maybe we've slipped into thinking of worship as something that we are obligated to do as Christians. The whole going to church thing. It's become something on a to-do list that's already crammed with lots and lots of other things competing with it on our to-do list. Or maybe you started to think of worship as a performance that we attend in the hopes of having a, a meaningful experience and we may not always come away at the end of the morning having had a meaningful experience. Or maybe we see worship more in consumeristic terms, as a way of getting our needs met. And we think that there may be other and maybe better ways of getting our needs met on an overcast Sunday morning. But what if worship isn't any of those things? What if it isn't an obligation that we fulfill? What if it isn't a performance that we attend? What if it isn't a product that we choose or evaluate? Well, if it's not those things, then what is it? What is really going on when we gather together to worship on Sunday morning? Well, to answer that question, I think we actually need to start even further back in the conversation not with what worship is, but with who and whose we are when we come into worship. This fall, we've embarked on a sermon series in which we're exploring some of the most important 
images and metaphors that we find in the New Testament to describe this thing called the church. And the image that we're, we are looking at today is that the church is a priesthood. I don't know exactly what you call a group of priests, a communion of priests, a mass of priests. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe a bunch of alter egos. Well, whatever it is, that's what we are. We are, according to the New Testament, a priesthood. You see this image, for instance, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where Peter says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And we see the same thing in Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, where John writes, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. But what exactly are priests? Here at Covenant, we have people who uh, have come from all sorts of different faith traditions uh, before, they were, uh, before they got involved at Covenant, and we love that. So if you happen to have grown up in a Catholic church, or maybe even as part of the Orthodox tradition, that probably shapes the image that comes to your mind when you hear the word priest. Maybe what you think of is a clergy person dressed in a clerical collar or in a cassock who is leading the liturgy or performing the sacraments. But the image that we are meant to call to mind when we come across this word in the New Testament is the Old Testament role of priest. Just to remind you, God established two key offices to help provide spiritual leadership for the people of God in the Old Testament period. And those are the offices of prophet and priest. The prophet's essential posture was facing out from God. God's command to the prophet was go. They were sent people. And their primary responsibility was to deliver a message from God to others. The priest's essential posture is just the opposite. It's facing in towards God. God's command to the priest was come. They are a summoned people. And their primary responsibility was offering a sacrifice to God. So when we think priest, we should think offering a sacrifice. The priest in the Old Testament period purified himself, and then he entered into the temple grounds, bringing an offering with him before God, and he offered that offering up on the altar. So the priest's primary responsibility, as we said, was to offer a sacrifice to God. And according to the New Testament, that's what, that's who all of us are. Every follower of Christ, every believer in Christ is a priest. So as New Testament priests, what sort of sacrifice are we called to, to make? We could ask the question that Micah asks in chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Well, we know that there's no more temple and there's no more altar and there's no more sacrificial system. So what is the sacrifice that we are called to bring as God's priests, as the people of God? Peter answers that question in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? What are those spiritual sacrifices that we are called upon to offer as priests before God? The New Testament tells us that there are two kinds of spiritual sacrifices, and we are called to make both of them. Our first spiritual sacrifice is the offering of our praise and thanks before God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. I love that picture. It's saying these two fit together in an inextricable way. If you are confessing Jesus as a follower of Christ, then you are speaking his praise to God. If you are speaking his praise to God, then you are confessing your your faith. This is an Old Testament idea that's brought forward into the New Testament. As Psalm 50 verse 23 says, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. Now the second kind of spiritual sacrifice is much more challenging and it's much more costly. It's the offering up of ourselves. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. In the Old Testament, the priest always offered a substitutionary sacrifice. An animal took the place of the worshiper and was sacrificed instead. But it's interesting, as we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, things change. We see that the priest, following the example of Jesus, is called to offer himself or herself as the offering. In Hebrews chapter 4, we're told that Jesus is our great high priest. And then in Hebrews chapter 7, it says that Jesus sacrificed for our sins once and for all when he offered himself. Now, when Jesus offered himself as sacrifice, as the one who is uniquely holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, as it says in Hebrews 7, that was the last physical, life-for-life sacrifice that was necessary. And by it, Jesus secured our forgiveness and he reconciled us to God, opening the way up for all of us who put our trust in him as our high priest, making it possible for us, when we believe, to approach the throne of grace with confidence and to find grace and receive mercy in our time of need. Have you trusted Jesus as your great high priest? as the one whose sacrifice atones for your sin, who gives you access into the holy of holies and reconciles you to God and brings you into his loving presence for eternity? If you have, then once we become followers of Christ, the self-sacrifice of Jesus takes on a new significance. It's not only the payment for my sin that opens access to God, It's also the pattern for the life that I am called to live as God's priest in his service, to worship God by offering up not only my praise and my thanks, but offering up my life. 
So now that we're clear about who and whose we are when we come into worship, priests coming before God to offer up the sacrifice of our praise and thanks and also the sacrifice of our lives, it becomes much clearer what worship is actually meant to be. Listen to this invitation from one of the most familiar calls to worship in all of the scriptures from Psalm 95. It says, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Of the dozens of words that are used in the Old Testament for worship, including praise, bless, give, give thanks, rejoice, celebrate, offer sacrifice, and others, this pair, bow down and worship, is the expression that's used more than any other in the Old Testament. This is the core understanding of what worship entails. Both words mean essentially the same thing. Bow your head, lower yourself. The first one, bow down, has to do with what your body is doing. And the second one, worship, has to do with what your heart is doing at the same time. This is a photo of a carving on an ancient obelisk that is in the British Museum. This is Yehu, the king of Israel, bowing down before the Assyrian king, Shalmaneser III, to pay him tribute. Here's a sketch of it so you can see more clearly what's actually going on here. This is what bowing down and worshiping means. On your hands and knees, with your face to the ground, in front of the king, surrendering your life to him. So bowing down and worshiping has two nuanced meanings. First, it means you, God, are higher than me. There is no aspect of me or of anyone else on the planet that is equal to you in any way. You alone are worthy. Compared to your majesty and your glory, compared to your beauty and your love, I am nothing. I place myself beneath you as a way of lifting you up in praise. But the other nuanced dimension of this expression, bowing down and worshiping, also means I place myself under your rule. You are over me. You reign as my king. I place myself under your dominion and authority. My worship is an act of surrender, offering myself to you as your subject and placing myself in your service. So when we bow down and worship, we lift up our praise and we lay down our lives as an offering before God in our priestly work. So think about the implication of that then. If my primary work of worship is to present myself before God to offer him praise and to offer him my own life, then what that means is worship is intended to be an encounter with the living God, in which we come face to face with him, and we respond to him in the only fitting way there is, which is offering up our praise and offering up ourselves. So ultimately, our worship can't just be about God. We can't just come together and talk about him. It has to be in the presence of God and directed to God, offering our praise and our lives to him. Listen to this wonderful description of worship in Psalm 27. It says, At the tabernacle I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. 
Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. So the, the words are spoken directly to God. And then listen to these words. My heart says, seek his face. Your face I will seek. That's the essential invitation and response of every service of worship. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face I will seek. I still remember the first time I ever encountered genuine worship. It was at a crew meeting to which my friend Carol Presley dragged me when I was a senior and still an atheist at Miami University. There was a worship band up front. The auditorium was filled with students all around me, raising their hands, clapping, singing. Many of them had their eyes closed, their faces. Some of them were filled with joy, others with passion. And they were worshiping an invisible being that I believed didn't exist. I felt so outside of their experience. It was uncomfortable, odd, disconcerting, and I was a bit freaked out. So either, there were only two options. Either they were all experiencing mutual delusion worshiping a being who didn't exist or they saw someone that I didn't see. I've been reading a fascinating book by Paul Menier that's called Eyes for God, which is a study of what the Bible teaches about seeing with the eyes of faith. It's all about the perspective that comes when God breaks into our lives and shows us that he is real. Menier argues that at the center of the life of faith is an encounter with the living God. Not merely coming to a place where we believe that certain things are true about God, but seeing God, colliding with God, finding ourselves before God. And the life of faith is everything that comes after and spills out from and is explained by that face-to-face -face encounter with God. This is how he opens his book. I have surely visited you, God says in Exodus chapter 3. God visits humanity. God speaks and we respond. God acts and we become aware of the true ground of our existence. We see ourselves now as persons in relation to God. It is that meeting of two persons that creates the strange perspective in the Bible that makes those who share it strangers and sojourners, for the biblical person finds in these visits an ultimate frame of reference for all his thinking, feeling, and willing. If one deletes from the Bible all reference to God's visits and their implications, nothing is left. As Christians, we believe that every time we gather for worship, God gathers with us. And we have the opportunity to encounter God anew. In our worship, God, God visits us. He stands in our midst and he speaks to us. He confronts us with his presence and his existence. As David says in Psalm 63, verse 2, I have seen you in the sanctuary and I have beheld your power and glory. And our worship and our service, our lives are our response to that encounter week after week.
It isn't that God, you know this, it isn't that God is uniquely here under this roof. This building doesn't begin to contain God. It is that God is uniquely present whenever God's people gather to worship. Wherever, as Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, two or three are gathered in his name. So some of the language that I've been using recently to describe my sense of how God is leading and inviting us as a church family in our worship is the movement from I am to he is to you are. When we first come into worship at the start of the service, we're focused, of course, on ourselves. We start where we are with the I am perspective. I'm distracted or I'm disengaged from God or I'm grateful or I'm weary or I'm guilty or I'm tired or I'm, I'm ashamed or whatever it is that I may bring with me into worship. And then as we worship, we widen our view out from ourselves and we remind one another of what is true about God. This is the, the he is part of worship. He is good. He is faithful. He is worthy of our trust. He is present he is involved. He is forgiving. He is at work in us to transform us into the likeness of Christ. And that shift from I am to he is is crucial to worship. But God doesn't want us to stay there. He invites us to make one more move from he is to you are when we stop speaking about God and we begin to speak to God. Worship is not a memorial service at which we, we recount to one another all the great things that Jesus did for us when he was still alive. Right? The cross is empty. Jesus has risen. He is alive and he is present right here in our midst. So we are invited to take one more turn in our worship from he is to you are. Lord, you are present. You are worthy. You are beautiful. You are good. You are enough. You are sufficient. You are life itself. When we worship, we are not members of a group fulfilling an obligation. We are not an audience being entertained. We are not consumers getting our needs met. We are creatures before our creator. We are subjects before our king. We are the rescued before our rescuer. We are children before our loving father. I've asked Diane Shockey if she would come and share with us some of the things that God has been teaching her about worship. Hi. When um, David asked me to share some of my worship journey, I thought of two kind of significant milestones or events in my life, my spiritual life, that impacted my worship. And they're both found in John 4, 23, in the first part of John 4, 24. So I'm going to read those. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. I knew as a believer that I was supposed to worship God early in my Christian life. I knew that as a priesthood of believers, that's what we were called to do. But I was never really sure how God would receive that. But when I read this verse, or this verse was brought to my attention, the Father is looking for those who will worship him. You don't look for something unless you want to find it, right? And so I felt like God really was looking for me to worship him. He wanted me to. It mattered to him that I did. So that was a big deal. And the second thing is the use of the word father in that verse. And you can put the picture up. 
That's a picture of a dad with his, with his daughter. And you can see from their faces that they really like being together. The father really cares about having his daughter with him. What she says to him is important. Um, they just have a moment that's just wonderful to both of them. I realized that God is my father. And when I come to him in worship, it's like that. He wants to be with me. He wants me to interact with him. What I say to him is precious to him, and it matters. Um, I have to say this. My own dad was not like this. He was a good man, and he loved me very much. But he was a World War II veteran. He had been in a German prison camp for 18 months. So when he came home, he had what we would now call post-traumatic stress syndrome. Back then, we just said he was real amped up, and he... Um, he had this constant need for danger, for excitement, for action, and he never had the capacity to interact with me like that. So when I first talked and heard about God as my father, that was confusing to me. I didn't really understand what God would, how that would work. But over time, I came to realize that my relationship with my biological dad is a different relationship than my relationship with God the Father. My relationship with God the Father is the perfect father, a new relationship. It's different. So when I come to him in worship, I can come to a father like this who really, really loves me. He really wants to be with me. He doesn't expect me to be perfect. He doesn't expect me to be more mature than I am. He just loves me, and he values me, and he wants to be with me. Um, both Travis and David gave me the same note about what I was sharing, but they didn't know it. So I think I'm just going to add this last part. Um, I'm known as kind of an expressive worshiper. When I'm up here, I really am. I'm, I'm doing this. I'm, I'm interacting with my Heavenly Father. And so when I raise my hands or smile or don't smile or close my eyes or not, it's because that's what's happening for me in worship most of the time. I, I'm interacting with my Father who loves me and my worship matters to him. I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty compelling reason to get out of bed on a Sunday morning. So in just a few minutes, we're going to round the corner into the rest of our worship time and actually just walk through a worship experience together. But before we do that, I just want to share some really practical thoughts about how we can approach our worship together as priests. The word that the church has used for centuries for the worship service is the word liturgy, which literally means the work of the people. And worship is work. It's hard work. Giving God his due in our worship requires us to stay focused and engaged and awake. It requires us to fight against the temptation to move into spectator mode and become passive or to move into consumer mode and become evaluative. It takes everything that we have to do our priestly work well. So here are three really practical tips about, uh, that, that may be helpful for us as we prepare to do the hard work of worship. First, as we enter into worship, don't wait for the person up front to do this. Invite God yourself to lead you and to lead us in our worship together. And as you do that, invite God to reveal his presence to us in our worship. Ask God to give us together eyes to see him as Isaiah was given eyes to see him seated on the throne, high and lifted up in our presence. Second, be all in. Refuse to go through worship on autopilot. 
participate fully, press in to stay fully engaged. The best way that I've discovered along the way to do that is to make everything that happens during the worship service my own. And here's what I mean by that. When someone is praying from up front, pray along with them silently, saying in your heart, yes, Lord, amen, Lord, make it so. Pray your own prayers of praise as prayers of praise are being offered from up front. Lift your own petitions to God as we're praying together. When worship leaders or the choir are singing from up front, sing along in your heart. That's why we have the words to our worship songs up on the screen, including our anthems. And when you're singing a hymn or a chorus, don't just plow through the stanzas, in through the eyes, out through the mouth. Think about and reaffirm the words as you're singing them so that they can be threaded through your heart before they go out of your mouth. I try, actually, as I'm worshiping, to paraphrase what I'm singing as I'm singing it. So we sang this morning, Be Thou My Vision, and as I'm singing that, I'm saying, Yes, Lord, let me see this, this world through your eyes as you see it. And as we sing, Not Be All Else to Me, Save That Thou Art, I'm singing, yes, Lord, that's what I want. Let nothing else matter to me except you. Don't just worship with your mind. Let your body participate in worship too. In your heart, fall flat on your face before God and let your body follow in whatever way seems appropriate and fitting to you. For instance, you might think about lifting your hands up as a way of lifting your praise to God or of opening your hands before God as a way of opening up or offering up your heart to him. Stand if you want to, kneel if you feel moved to, close your eyes as a way of bringing the invisible God nearer and, and into your vision. Feel free to stop singing and be led in the worship by the people who are around you. You might even let the emotion come to your face. It might, you might find yourself smiling in worship or crying in worship. Don't let the worship service end without fulfilling the command of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. That is our work of worship. To offer ourselves as a spiritual act of worship to God. What that means is when we come to the offering, the offering is not meant to be a break in the action or an intermission or, or the time where we write our check. Maybe you could do that ahead of time. Let that, that offering time be a culminating moment in our worship when we offer all that we are and all that we have back to God as an offering. And here's the final practical tip. Resign from caring about the things that distract you most. For some of you, that will mean resigning from caring what the people around you are doing as they worship or resigning from caring about what the people around you are thinking about what you're doing worship, during worship. I think for all of us, it will mean resigning from having our needs and preferences met during the service. That's what a Spotify playlist is for. That's not why you're here. We don't pick songs because we think that you will enjoy them. We pick songs that will shepherd us into God's presence and unveil him before us. So now we're going to take some time 
to practice what we've been talking about and learning about this morning and over the years of our Christian experience. Coming this morning as priests together, as a priesthood before God in worship, offering up our praise and also offering up ourselves as a sacrifice to God.